please have a seat. Thank you, Alan. Thanks, Phil. Welcoming the why. I know when I first announced the, um, the, the, the uh, title of this little mini-series, Advent series, people thinking, oh, that sounds really complicated. Welcoming the why, some philo philosophical thing, some statement of being. It's the Edwards way, isn't it, all that. But I, d I don't want it to be, um, I don't want it to be deep, but I don't want it to be just abstract because Jesus is far from abstract. God became one of us. God became one of us, became flesh. That's what we are journeying towards, that what is at the heart of Christmas. The Christian Advertising Network, that's not quite their call anymore, but I've forgotten their new name. Christmas starts with Christ, is their little strap line. So true. And welcoming the why, there's a little scene of nativity and Mary and Joseph and donkey clearly just snuck in the back. And Jesus, the why. But why in those ways? The remarkable truth that God became one of us. That in ancient times and still today with cults and gurus, Everyone wants to become divine. Everyone wants to become kind of top of the tree, looked up to, you know, kind of acclaimed and seen as the great and the miracle worker and maybe even divine. And I guess in our Western skepticism, we treat that with disdain very often. But Pharaoh wanted to be treated as divine. Nero, the emperor, uh, and Herod wanted to be seen as more than flesh and blood, but entirely the opposite direction at Christmas. God became one of us. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And much of the Gospels pursues that and much of culture reflects on that enormity. I, I don't know if you remember this song, some will, some won't, because maybe you weren't born when it was around and uh, maybe it passed you by. Um, but it's a song by... Joan Osborne. It does have sound. We'll start that again. So, there we go. Are we right? Yes. Third time. Oh, there we go. One of these nights and about 12 o'clock, this old world's going to relay and rock. Saints, we all tremble and cry for pain, for the Lord's going to come in his heaven airplane.
She was having trouble with lip syncing there, clearly. Um, so <laughs> you got the, uh, the question, a really profound song. What if God is one of us? And the slightly provocative line, just a slob like one of us. And she's not, she's not blaspheming, I don't think, but she's asking a very old question and touching something really quite profound. That often when we consider Jesus and, and there, there's that sort of strange glow in the crib, that we kind of think, well, the divine God made flesh, the word dwelling amongst us. Well, we really should notice that. Welcoming the why. I don't know if it's ever crossed your mind, and, and I was talking a little bit about this this morning, and we've prayed it and sung it, that, that Jesus came to die for our sins. He came to right the wrongs, to die in our place. You know that, don't you? But I wonder if it's ever dawned on you, of, well, why did it take him 30 years? If he came to die, there was a really, this sounds a little bit macabre, I'm sorry, but it, there was a really good opportunity that he could have died very early on. The wise men, the Magi, came to Herod, and Herod didn't like the fact that they came. And as a consequence of there's a new king in town, said all the babies should be put to death. Do you remember that? And so there was infanticide. There were hundreds of children, probably, boys, killed, died. If Jesus simply came to die for our sins and... and don't mishear me, I'm not, I'm, I'm not denying that, affirming that most strongly. But why was it that he didn't just die straight away and accomplish the same goal? If he was sinless at birth and sinless at two and sinless at 30, he could have died at two or under. I wonder if that's ever crossed your mind, maybe not. But why, why so long? Well, welcoming the why. Last week, I talked about how he came particularly to demonstrate and to, to reveal to us, to show us what God is like. And I said, it's not just enough to look at creation, though creation does kind of remind us that there must be more than this, really, truly. But we can't find our way to God from observing either in microscopic or macroscopic. It's not enough. And it's not enough with religion. My goodness, we're good at that, of trying that, whether we have and claim to have no religion or plenty of it. It doesn't get us there. Jesus said, and John is full of this, if you see me, you see the Father. Astonishing. If you see me, says Jesus, you see the Father. Not just more information. It's not just listen to the lecture. But God has showed up in Jesus Christ. It wasn't that Jesus wanted to convey kind of a list of things you need to know, but Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus makes him known fully, finally. 
Paul in Colossians, he is, that's Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. If you see Jesus, you see God. And so, as a consequence of that, it's true, we will never get closer to understanding God than Jesus. Really important for us to grasp. If we want to understand God, we understand Jesus. If we think, well, Jesus, you know, okay, and we'll move away from, from uh, Jesus. I've got them on here, look. And I pre-prepared. If you're moving away from Jesus, you're moving away from understanding God. Think about that. If you think, well, oh, Jesus, not sure, but I'll find God. Actually, it doesn't happen. Jesus has come the way, the truth, and the life. He reveals to us completely what God is like. Apart from him, we just won't know. And equally, if we stop short of Jesus, if we think, oh, you know, it's, he, he demands quite a lot, we're actually stopping short of discovering what God is like because he has said, he has said that if you see me, you see the Father. So I'm hoping that you've maybe got access to a Bible with you. I'll read the story as we go along, and, uh, but it's, I'm going to go dip in and out of it and... Um, Talk about some other things. It's complicated for James at the back. If by me doing that, I apologize. John 9. There's some Bibles over there. If you want to nip over, you can grab one. John 9. It's a story, an incident of Jesus. And he heals a man born blind. Verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man born blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This story, as you'll come to to discover, has loads of bad theology. Theology is thoughts about God, words about God. It's full. Every character, apart from Jesus, has bad theology in here. And we start off with this, this young man, uh, we don't know his age, he might be older, but we presume, well, we, we don't really know, but a man born blind from birth, never seen. And along the way, Jesus and the disciples come across him, and the disciples ask a kind of question that is reflective of their society, reflective of their thinking, reflective actually of so much of our thinking. Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. In other words, they were thinking um, that bad stuff doesn't just happen by accident. There's cause and effect, there's a reason. You know, if you scratch beneath the surface, you may not understand it, but actually, ultimately, it comes down to it must be deserved. Uh, So often, uh, I, I hear the word karma, banded about, not in the Bible, but I hear the word karma banded about. I came across a photograph of a student uh, who'd pinned um, a note on her windscreen, uh, and she said, I've tried to find a parking space, but can't find anyone. Dear parking attendant, let me off. It's my final exams, and I couldn't find anywhere to park. Bracket, good karma at the bottom. And uh, the traffic attendant had come along and stuck a s- ticket, but it said, warning, not actually uh, giving her a ticket. He was kind to her. But there is this thinking of who sinned? Judgment. 
It's so close to so much of our thinking. You know, well, I don't know if you heard in the, the stories of news this week of, of that dear child, seven or nine, eight years old, who, who had been severely affected because mum had drunk heavily through pregnancy. And the courts were asked to decide, did she sin? Was she sinning against this unborn human being? Who sinned that caused this problem? If you've got younger children, you may be in this whole kind of understanding of, of how it works. I remember being told, you know, you've got to write your letter to Father Christmas, put down what you'd like, but he knows if you've been bad or good. And if you've been naughty, or if you're naughty this December, he won't come. Consequence, we deserve. And they're questioning, saying this man, can't have just happened by chance, we jump in the blame game. Jesus responded, verse three, neither this man nor his parents sin, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, I want you to get this, that, that stuff happens in the world. Yeah, sometimes it's the consequence of bad decisions and mistakes and stupidity, but sometimes things are just broken. That's the culture and the climate that we live in. And trying to apportion blame and to focus in and saying, it's their fault or it's, it's my fault or it's, it's God who's punishing me. It just doesn't work because things are too complicated and, and our world is all messed up and, and out of place and out of sorts. But, says Jesus, and there's always good news with Jesus, God's glory is going to be revealed God's display of power and love and mercy always comes in the context of our weakness. After saying this, verse 6, he, Jesus, spit on the ground. I don't quite know what Mary taught him as a young man. You don't spit on the ground, do you? Anyway, he did spit on the ground and made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. And he told him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. This means scent. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. I wonder if the man was a little bit shocked. We're not even told that the man kind of asked to be healed, though I'm probably thinking he was glad. I mean, we, we see that he was glad. Maybe he just thought, well, you know, no one's ever known someone healed from birth of blindness. Jesus spits, makes mud, puts it in his eyes. And the drama of, of the man who's never seen anything, told, go and wash. And maybe as he washes that mud out, maybe he's got a face pack, a Jesus face pack. Suddenly, as the water's clear, come from his eyes, he sees. It's astonishing. 
absolutely incredible. I bet the man had a smile, don't you? I mean, I wonder what he was noticing. I wonder if he understood. Uh, if you, uh, not everyone was here, but there's a, a lady called Anne who was at, um, at New Wine, and she, she had gone blind through a degenerative uh, genetic eye condition. And her story's on our website. Who was there to hear that at the Philly event? It was good, wasn't it, Karen? Amazing. She's um, maybe in her 40s with some children, had a whole mixed-up circumstance. And she was blind. She, she registered blind. And through prayer, Jesus healed her. And I love how she tells the story. She was like, who are these people? And she was saying, they're the people from your church. She'd never seen them. She heard them. She knew their voice. And she said, colors. And she was camping in a field, with, and you know, just seeing stuff again. She was just amazed that her stories on, on the website. I encourage you to listen to it. Jesus has done it. It's uh, demonstrated now by doctors and, and opticians. Anyway, so he comes back, uh, kind of, hey, I can see. And um, verse 8, his neighbors and those who'd formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claim that he was, others said, no, he only looks like him. But he insisted, I'm the man. Now it's panto season, isn't it? And you can imagine the man coming, look, look, I can see, I can see. And they're, oh, no, you can't. And they're like, he's behind, it's a different man. And you know, there's this whole kind of comedy going on of, that can't be the one, it must be someone else. No, it's me, it's me, it's me. He's saying, and they're, no, no, don't be silly, you're pulling that leg. You know, it's, it's, it's almost farce. But he insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. And then they asked in verse 12 the most humorous question. Where is this man, they asked him. Um, I couldn't see. I don't know. <laughs> I could just hear him. I don't know what he looks like. Where is he? You know, it's, it is very funny. I didn't see where he went. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. This is where the story takes a turn for the worse. If we'd have finished there, and it would be brilliant. Ah, oh, the man is seeing, and, but there's more. You see, the Pharisees, they couldn't celebrate, even though they could see that this man had had the most remarkable change of circumstances. They bring the man before the religious leaders, and it's a Sabbath. And they question him. The Pharisees also asked how, they asked him, how um, had he received his sight? He put mud on my eyes, the man is good at telling his testimony by this point. And I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this is not from God. This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. I said earlier that there's a lot of bad theology. Here's some more. 
The Pharisees couldn't get past the fact that this day that Jesus had done this wonderful miracle, this gift of sight, had happened on a day when people weren't meant to work. They had lots of rules about what one couldn't do. And some of the Pharisees were saying, this man isn't from God. They they hadn't talked to him clearly. They hadn't talked to Jesus. They hadn't got much information about him. But they were certain that this wouldn't be from God because we know what God is like. They're the leaders. They're the religious. They understand the way things are and how God is and what God would do and can't do and won't do and shouldn't do. And he will not heal on the Sabbath. In other words, their view of God is kind of in a box. We know how this works. God always has his day off. He wouldn't heal. And do you know what, says the Pharisees, we understand this book. You know, we've got this sophisticated set of rules and regulations, thought through and revised and refined, inspired by centuries of the deepest thinkers. Doesn't happen. And that's precisely why the Son came. That's precisely why we welcome the why. God sent his son because it's not simply about more knowledge. It's about him. You see, as human beings, we're really good at making, uh, making things a little bit more complicated than they really are. So here's a little bit of research that which have, uh, have put down. And these are the, on the column on the right, the total number of words in terms of contracts, in terms of conditions. If you've ever kind of um, downloaded iTunes or a bit of software, and before you install it, it says, do you agree to the terms and conditions? And there's a little box you can scroll down. Uh, I, I did a bit of uh, Google hunting, and iTunes has got 56 pages of fine print about the legal terms of the contract and agreeing to use iTunes. Anyone ever read 56 pages of fine print? You just click agree, don't you, and start listening to your music. Uh, PayPal, wonderfully, has got 36,000 words if you use PayPal. Hamlet, if you study Hamlet and have done it, you've learned 30,066. Apple iTunes, there you go, nearly 20,000 words. Macbeth comes in at fourth place. And then you've got um, Windows Live and Apple and its operating system and Facebook and da-da-da-da-da. Contracts, legal, multiply. I love the fact that Jesus in his person cuts through so much complexity. I love how he's not establishing a covenant, he is the new covenant. But even when you look back at the covenants of the Old Testament, their word count is really low. Genesis 12, we've been going through Genesis life lessons. Really simple, three short verses to Abraham establishing the covenant. I will bless you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll give you a land. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. That's it. Covenants endure, contracts we find exceptions. An argument breaks out, verse 16. This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. 
You see, Jesus isn't just telling information. He's showing the very nature of God. He cuts through all the legal framework and this, you know, this edifice of stuff. Really interesting book written by a guy called Philip Yancey. Uh, one of his first books, he wrote a book called The Jesus I Never Knew. He'd grown up in a culture and a, and a system and uh, uh, in America where there was lots of do's and don'ts, lots of rules of how to behave and how to conform and, and how to, to be a Christian and it was quite complicated. And he discovered that that wasn't Jesus. He came back to the scriptures and started to read the gospels and found that the Jesus of the Bible doesn't match up to the Jesus that had been created by culture and religion. He, he wrote these words. He said, indeed, for women and other oppressed people, Jesus turned upside down the accepted wisdom of the day. Pharisees believed that touching an unclean person polluted the one who touched. But when Jesus touched a person with leprosy, Jesus didn't become soiled, the leper became clean. When an immoral woman washed Jesus' feet, she, was, she went away forgiven and transformed. When he defied custom to enter a pagan's house, the pagan servant was healed. In a word and in deed, Jesus was proclaiming this radically new gospel of grace. To get, clean, to get clean, a person didn't have to journey to Jerusalem, offer sacrifices, undergo purification ritual. All a person had to do was follow Jesus. In short, Jesus moved the emphasis from God's holiness of being exclusive to God's mercy being inclusive. Instead, the message, no desirables allowed, he proclaimed, in God's kingdom there are no undesirables. By going out of his way to meet with Gentiles, eat with sinners, touch the sick, he extended the realm of God's mercy. To Jewish leaders, Jesus' actions jeopardized the very existence of their religious caste system. No wonder the Gospels mentioned more than 20 occasions when they conspired against him. Now the Pharisees, verse 17, they turned again to the blind man. They've been coming up with their best solution. Kind of debating, this can't be of God. No, no, but, but you, know, a, you know, how can a sinner perform such signs? Well, they've got it both wrong. You know, this man was from God, and he wasn't a sinner. Verse 17, they turned to the blind man. Well, actually, he's not blind anymore. To the seeing man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. They still didn't believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now he can see? Verse 20, we know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who'd already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That's why they asked his parents, he's of age. That's why his parents said he's of age. Ask him. So who do you say Jesus is, young man who can see? 
He's a prophet. I don't really know. I didn't see him. All I did was he came up to me and he spat on my ground, made some mud, put in my eyes, told me to go and wash in a pool, and here I am. I was blind, but I can see. He called the parents. Yeah, this is our, our formerly blind son. We don't know how it happened, but wow, he can see. Ask him. You see, it had become common knowledge that Jesus was rocking the establishment. He was breaking down the structures of control the structures of society, the norms, the box, the system that they'd figured God out and how it works. And anyone who started to trust this Jesus, well, they were dangerous. A second time, verse 24, they summoned the man who'd been blind. Give God glory by telling the truth, they said. Quite why they think he's not telling the truth when he can see. I mean, you don't just make that up, do you? But give God glory by telling the truth. They said, we know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. You see, what this story points to, and this is why Christmas why we welcome Jesus. You see that we live under false assumptions and belief about God if we separate Jesus out. Jesus reveals the Father fully. This is why he is central and crucial and wonderful. Verse 25, I love this. He says, one thing I know some people say, well, I can't, I can't begin to trust Jesus until I know everything. I can't believe everything. I haven't got every answer, uh, every question answered and every kind of fact worked out. But the man got it right. One thing I know, one thing, I was blind, but now I see. Reminds us that we may not understand everything it may just be that in this story, the snapshot of the, the young man that God has preserved for us, reminded to decide to take a step, even if you don't know everything, but it's the step to Jesus. Verse 25 says that we may not know all the answers. Uh, he says, I don't know if he's a sinner, and I don't really know much about him. One thing I do. I was blind, but now I see. And he decided to take that step with Jesus, towards Jesus. In verse 26, they're exasperated. They ask him, how did he do, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Uh, and I don't know whether this tone in verse 27 of the response is exasperation or kind of like, oh, you want to hear again? You know, this is amazing. Let me tell you again. He answered, I've told you already and you don't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? It's like, you know, when you've got small children, they say, let's watch Toy Story for the 15th time again. Or Frozen. Again and again. Tell us again, you know. We want to know the story. It's not that. They're trying to trick him, trap him. Then they hurled insults at him and they said, really interesting, we are this fellow's, you are this fellow's disciple, we are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. 
they really had got it wrong. Now that man, the blind, the seeing man, verse 30. Now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. Bad theology alert. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He does. He listens to sinners. Every time we call out in the name of Jesus, the Lord hears. Even if we think we're far away, the Lord hears. The man hadn't got that knowledge yet. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Well, he does, but also he listens to those who don't. Nobody has ever heard of the opening of uh, the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing that much. He got right. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. You see, the category of God was so boxed and so wrong that at the heart of this story is thinking, well, God might work for good people, but not bad. And we've already heard at the beginning, actually, God was at work for his glory. There aren't categories of people, the righteous and the unrighteous, the God-fearers and the pagans. Now this story, because it speaks of Jesus, the why, gets to the heart that says God is more merciful and more gracious and broader and loving than ever we could think. See, God extends mercy beyond the boundaries we place. That forever we seem to put limits to and, and, and kind of ring fence God's mercy and say, well, he's clearly going to extend mercy to these, but not to these. That's religion, not Jesus. I love the, uh, the very first day of my first day in ministry at a church, and I got a phone call at 10 in the morning, and it was from the mum of a girl called Amy, and she was 15, and Amy was, um, you may have heard me tell the story, she dropped out of school because she was a bit of a, she was a bit of a white girl. She just didn't like school, she was mean to the teachers, that she was on, suspended loads. And she started hanging out with this crowd of people who go down to the park and get their diamond white or whatever cider they were drinking and alcohol pops and get drunk. And then one thing led to another and whilst she was drunk, she got pregnant. And the person that had got her pregnant was like, I don't care about whether you're pregnant or not. Don't care. It's your problem. And so she, she kind of thought about whether to abort her pregnancy. And she dropped out of school and she, I, I can't remember if she was excluded or not, but she dropped out and she never took her GCSEs. And nine months later, Kean was born. Kean's 15 now, but the reason she phoned up the church, her mum phoned up the church on her behalf, was that she thought all the way through the pregnancy, God's going to punish me for being such a nasty person, for going off the rails big time. And I bet the way he does it is that my child will be born and there'll be something wrong. God's way. 
she might understand, verse 1, who sinned, her? And Keen was born fine, and she just wanted to say thanks. And I'm so glad, I'm so glad that I got to see her come to faith in Jesus. Because at the heart of this story and the heart of gospel and the heart of why is that mercy informs our theology. That nobody is out of God's mercy and reach. We use this language so often. We talk about people, oh, they're so far from God. Have you used that phrase? That person's so far from God, that drug addict or that, that pagan or that pedophile or that terrorist. They're so far from God. No, they're not. God is close by and at hand with them. Jesus shows up and corrects our thinking. He says, and the implication of this story is that if we're capable of mistreating someone, if we, if you, if I, are capable of mistreating anybody, our theology is wrong. Our thinking about God is off beam and skewed. What do I mean? Any racism, any sexism, all that stuff. If you were to eyeball to eyeball someone and fail to see them as someone created by and loved by God, someone for whom Jesus died for, and can't see that, then your theology is wrong. God sent his son Jesus to die even for the worst enemy. Our worst enemy is valuable to God, as valuable to God as we are. And Jesus says, pray for your enemies. We, don't, we sometimes even forget to pray for our friends. Why does Jesus say pray for our enemies? Because to remind us that our Father cares for them too. How dare we limit or constrain or think people are beyond the mercy of God. Imagine what that would look like if we began to take that seriously. That as we saw people, we saw and acted in mercy. Imagine the reputation of the church and Christians, of people who would say, we may not agree with this Jesus, but their mercy and their love is boundless. We cannot withdraw mercy. This story, this reminds us of why he came, so he could show it, not just give us information, but actually flesh it out. Flesh it out so we could see and understand person to person, interaction with interaction. He didn't just die at two when Herod came with his swords and, and, and killed the children. He had to show us why he had come. Yes, to die on the cross, but to show us in that space that we were watching, this is who God is like. This is who God is. Mercy. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And I love this, when Jesus found him, Jesus went to find him. It wasn't, oh, that's sad, isn't it? Got thrown out. Those Pharisees. He went to find him. Luke's got some stories about the lostness and the effort God goes to find. But Jesus finds him and says, do you believe in the Son of Man? 
Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, listen, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Verse 38, then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Again and again, the Gospels demonstrate who God is. And they show this, and I'm finishing. God takes interest in individuals. He cares for us, one person at a time. Again and again in the Gospels, there are crowds and people, but we're, we're highlighted and drawn out to specifics. We may not know their name, but we know that they're individual people that Jesus stops for, one by one, heals, speaks to, spends time with. And that shows us that this is what the Heavenly Father is like. This is what God is like for us. That individuals matter to God. We'd never learn that if we looked out at nature and we looked at the stars. We'd never grasp that you and me matter as individuals to God. We really do. He knows us and he cares for us and he pursues us and, 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 and he's close by. And every time we reject him, he never leaves. We'd never learn that from nature and we'd never learn that from religion because religion says you have to do it right first before he'll take an interest. And the Gospels reverse all that. So you matter, you matter, and he's close by. Jesus says to the man, do you believe in the Son of Man? And I guess that man's ears and his sense of hearing had developed through the years because sight was missing. And I'm sure he knew that voice. It wasn't enough, you see, for that man just to have mercy, but he needed to meet the person. And Jesus pursued him and said, here I am. Welcoming the why. Once upon a time, God was one of us to show us what God is like. He showed up in a human body. He showed he showed up. Welcome in the Y this Christmas. Hooray. Come on, Alan.